Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hello, this is Colin, and we are doing one of those shows again where there are no guests, there are no topics, at least no foreordained topics. Uh, You will decide what the topics are. You will call, or you won't, call 1-888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. You could even place the call now if you wanted to be that kind of person, first in line, all that stuff. And you will tell me what it is we're going to talk about. And hopefully I will be responsive. Uh, But I may just emit an eerie, toneless hum. Who can say? Uh, But it's always exciting. It's like working without a net. You know, there's a reason why they use nets, though. I'm starting to see that uh, as these days unfold. Anyway, join us for Ask or Tell Me Anything after this. It's time to do Ask or Tell Me Anything. By the way, I get to, I get to pick out the music for these shows. This is <laughs> one of the great delights of my life. Anyway, that was my man Anderson Pack and Justin Timberlake. It was from, like, from some kind of Trolls movie. There's like a lot of really good music that's hidden in movies that you will never in a million years watch. I believe that's from Trolls World Tour. All right, so uh, here's the plan to the extent that we have a plan. And in fact, the entire point is to not have a plan. But the plan is 888-720-WNPR. That's the number to call, 888-720-9677, if you're not into the alphanumeric thing. Uh, And when you do that, you will be connected uh, with one of our helpful representatives. And (laughs) it'll be Jonathan McPants, actually. Uh, And you can tell us what you want to talk about. And I will then endeavor to talk to you about it. We also have with us... At all times. I have two of them at the moment, although I could reach into my satchel and fetch out more. But I have two. I'm holding them up to the microphone so that you can see them. I have two Mr. Carp envelopes. Now, what we've instituted recently is uh, a code system, a safe word, word almost, or perhaps an unsafe word, where you call. And if what you really want me to do is open one of these uh, envelopes, which are stuffed with clips by the reclusive genius, Mr. Carp. I, I mean, I, I promise you, I have not seen into these envelopes. I think the times that I've opened them have proven that I don't, <laughs> that I don't have advanced knowledge about what's in them. I can't remember who it was. I think it might have been Edelstein. 
Yeah, I think my, we were on. I was on a walk with David Edelstein, and now we were talking about this. He goes, "Well, it's never really worked, right? It's never really been good when you when you've done that." And I thought, well. I hadn't really put that into words, but I think it might be true. But anyway, I'm still ready to do that. But you have to – we've instituted a new system. If you want me to open one of the envelopes and then discuss its contents, you have to either use the word pineapple or platypus. I think there were some other ones. Purple. I think purple is another word you can use. Uh, and you, you can even use them and see if I even notice because that's another way you could put me to the test. But anyway, yeah, 888 888- 720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. You know, as some of you know, I am, for no real explicable reason, a Green Bay Packers fan. And so uh, lately, because the Packers have not been good, my Sundays have been very complicated for me. And I mean, last week, not this past, not yesterday, but on on the 8th of October, they played in London. Uh, they played the Giants in London, which meant that you watch the game at 9.30 in the morning. And then in my case, in the case of all Packers fans, then you have the whole day ahead of you to be depressed. Uh, and then they played the Jets yesterday, and they also lost. Uh, these are teams that they're supposed to beat. But what I want to mention has nothing to do with football, really. But um, their coach, Matt LaFleur, took a certain amount of heat for saying in the press conference, he was asked, what, 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 what were they going to do to turn the team around? Because it's a, a pretty drastically underperforming franchise right now. And he said, I don't know. And so there were people on Twitter kind of raking him over the coals for that. I actually think people, particularly people in positions of, positions of authority, people who are public figures, they don't say I don't know enough. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't know is something that they should feel pretty comfortable saying. I know it feels like an admission. It feels like a failure. But... Um, but I don't know is an okay thing to say when you don't know. Uh, and it's better that you do that than try to use BS to cover up the fact that you don't know. Or, I don't know, just proffer some plausible-sounding answer. But people don't say I don't I, – as a matter of fact, <laughs> on this particular episode today, I'll probably say I don't know a number of times because I won't know. Uh, but, it, it, I mean, I think this – I thought this has been especially true during the pandemic. At times, even the smarter people, the people who are kind of you know thought leaders or leaders of institutional responses to COVID nineteen, should have said, "I don't know," and instead they they said other things and they provided information that wasn't as accurate ultimately as it could have been. One, you know, I listened to this show called "This Is Proof That I Have No Life," but uh, I listened to a podcast called "This Week in Virology," and I especially enjoy these weekend clinical updates that involve this Dr. Daniel Griffin. And he says, I don't know a lot. You know, I mean, I was just listening today uh, and I think he was being asked about whether Paxlovid plays any role in either inhibiting long COVID or whether Paxlovid might be a culprit because of the so-called rebound effect um, and, you know, in, in creating long COVID. And whatever the question was, he said, I don't we don't know. I don't know. Um, which is a really good answer. And so I think it's fine. I think it's fine to not know. Uh, I mean, obviously there are some situations. <laughs> you wouldn't watch your surgeon in the middle of surgery to say, oh, I don't know. I don't know, what the, I don't know what's happening. I'm, you know, somebody who's like delivering your baby, you know. I don't know. I don't know what's going on here. Uh, you don't want to hear that. Right? But for the most part, it's okay to say I don't know. And it's certainly preferable to do that than it than to pretend that you do know. All right. Calls are coming in here. Let me give the number one more time. 
888-720-9677 or uh, 888-720-WNPR. I'm laughing because the first topic just seems like something I probably won't know anything. I could be saying I don't know really early uh, in today's broadcast. All right. Here's uh, Ellie from East Haddam. Hi. You're on the air. Hi. How are you doing today? Good. I think we are neglecting the subject of probate because this is something which is being controlled now interstate. There are horror stories about anyone who feels that they want a piece of a person's life can file for their protection. This is not only Department of Children and Family Services, but social workers, police, a jealous relative who doesn't get included in a will. And there is no higher court. Once the probate court says it's done, the appeal process most often goes back to the same probate court, and in my case, they won't even admit that I was declared dead, and that's not true. Oh, my goodness. So, um... There are multiple states that now have a compact which allows, let's say, Florida. There are horror stories in Florida. I was just reading about a woman whose husband went down from Georgia to Florida to the Mayo Clinic, and then they were sent to another hospital, and when he got worse, she took him back to the Mayo Clinic, and the local DCS said she was endangering his life by moving him. So they took over him, all his assets. She spent money on attorneys and became penniless. And he died while she was not allowed access. This is a story I've heard again and again and again. Hmm. You know, I don't know. I am going to invoke the I don't know rule. I don't know enough about, I mean, I know a little bit about probate. Um, and it's it's an interesting position, too, because it's, to the best of my knowledge, I know it definitely is. It's the only kind of "quote unquote" judicial position in Connecticut that's uh, resolved by election. Right? We elect our probate judges. We don't elect any other kind of judges. Um, and but I don't know what else to say about that. Um, but good luck with your struggles. I'm sorry you were de- declared dead. I would be prepared to testify that you are not dead. Uh, all right. Here's uh, Iman in New Haven. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, Colin. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, so I want to talk about driving culture in Connecticut. I would say I know more about New Haven or what I see. I've lived here for about a year and a half, and I truly feel like I've never seen dri- driving like what I've seen here. You know, people running red lights, but not even just like like skipping the queue to run a, a red light, yeah. even though there's, like, traffic oncoming. oncoming. Um, I see people, like, you know, like, pedestrians are shocked when you let them walk through the crosswalk, even though they have the right-of-way. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like that's the norm. Um, so I'm a cyclist. I'm a driver. I'm a pedestrian. All these things sort of, like, bug me. And I don't know if, like, I'm the only one who sees this or if there's recognition all over that there's, like, something wrong and that there's, like, no accountability with like driving as if you care other people share the road with you. No, I think you're right. And I think that there is a pretty common perception that driving in Connecticut is bad and has been getting worse. Now, I don't know how unique Connecticut is in that regard. Maybe everybody in Nebraska feels the same way. But I do feel like there's something especially kind of ungenerous about Connecticut drivers and Connecticut everybody, really. I mean, I was a pretty avid cyclist for a number of years and I've just stopped I put my road bike in mothballs because I just don't think it's safe, you know. And to me, 
the biggest danger to the cyclist is still the person looking at his or her phone while driving. Yeah, I mean, those sure. people are going to kill you basically sooner or later. Cyclists, I think we have to be honest, also do a lot of weird things and they at, at times act as though traffic rules don't apply to them, stop signs and stop lights and stuff like that. Uh, so that's not helping the the, the picture either. Uh, you know, and, and, and there are an awful lot of pedestrians who rather than press the little button, uh, and wait for the little, you know, cross light. They just take off into the intersection. So it's not just the drivers, but the drivers obviously bear the highest burden because they can do the most harm, the most. And so, yeah, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of people who feel as though, particularly stop signs and red lights, that those things are kind of optional, right? You know? And, yeah, they do feel optional. <laughs> <laughs> right, and, and like the person you described who not only wants to red, run the red light, but will jump the queue, as you said, just sort of, I assume that means swerve around the people who are stopped at the red light yeah. so that they can go into the intersection with oncoming traffic coming perpendicular to them. You know, and it, it is like they've said, you know what, I've just decided I'm going to I'm going to roll the dice here. <laughs> I, that's what they've that, that they've sort of made that little I'm going to roll the dice. I'm not going to sit at the stop sign or the, the red light. I'm going to go into the intersection to see what happens. Uh, but but don't you think you go ahead. on some level like there isn't enforcement like like oh, yeah. if you knew that there was a four hundred dollar bill at the end of you running a red light, you might not do it. And I just feel like on some level there isn't good enforcement in the state about, yeah, people obeying the laws and the rules. Yeah, I mean, I think people want one of two things, more enforcement or less enforcement, depending on how they perceive themselves as scoff laws. But I agree that, you know, there. I mean, in many ways, because police are asked to do so many different things these days, you know, this whole idea of, you know, making sure that people follow traffic laws, particularly, I think, in urban areas where there's like just a lot of other you know, uh, a lot of other constituencies and situations that are demanding their attention. Police are like, you know, mothers with like seven kids or something. There's like always somebody who just fell over or knocked something over or something like that. And I, I think in those environments, even though really, you know, following traffic laws can be, as you're suge- suggesting, a matter of life or death, I think it gets a pretty low low priority compared to some of the other stuff that's going down. So, uh, but it's dangerous. I agree. So I don't know. Don't move, though. We'll try to fix this. You know. We no, like I work. like it here. I like it here. I mean, I will say I came from New York City, and I have gotten the ticket for running a red light on my bicycle. Mm. Um, you know, like so, like it is possible. And I don't even think you know, like I, I think that was an unfair ticket. But you know, I did run the red light. But yeah, I think it is possible to just hold people accountable. I don't I actually don't think that people need to interact more with the police to hold people accountable. Places in Europe use traffic cameras to do that. So I just, I feel like things are possible if we put our minds to it. All right. Well, there's lots of uh, activist groups down there in New Haven. New Haven's one big yep. activist group. Just join one of them. There are plenty, plenty of bicyclist groups and stuff like that. Uh, sure. You can make a difference. I can just tell from your, your tone of voice uh, and the strength of your spirit, that you can be a positive difference maker. So thanks for calling. And, okay, let's see, what should I do? All right, I'll do this one. All right, by the way, the number, once again, if you want to call in, 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. Here is Michael in Stratford. Hi, Michael. Yes, hi. How are you, Colin? Good. Okay, Um this is a question uh, I was uh, trying to get through last uh, time you had a call-in, but it involves um, getting information about local politicians. Mm-hmm. Um, I follow, uh, you know, I follow a lot of news stuff, so I know what's happening at the national level, I mean, reasonably well. 
Uh, I don't claim to be an expert, but you know, I I watch quite a bit of news. I subscribe to the Times, New York Times, and blah blah blah. But when it comes to my state representatives or even my mayor, um, uh, I hate to be the type of guy that just pulls the Democratic lever, even though I tend to vote Democratic. But I don't think that's good for. I don't think that makes sense. I'd rather know what the record voting record of these people are or their policy positions. Um, the little stuff we get in the mail is hardly credible. Well, the stuff in the uh, mail, you could, promoting their campaign, right? The stuff in the mail you forget about. <laughs> I mean, those. Yeah. Uh, no, so basically, I mean, I've said this before, but uh, the good news is we live in an era where there's some pretty good hyperlocal journalism and pretty good statewide journalism. So. Let's start statewide, Connecticut Mirror, CT News Junkie. These are both terrific sites that do an amazing job. I mean, there's obviously the legacy stuff. So you're kind of down in Hearst territory. I have sort of a conflict of interest because I write for Hearst. But the Hearst papers have very robust uh, reporting staff and uh, staffs and take the coverage of politics here in the state of Connecticut very seriously. So just in terms of conventional legacy kind of stuff, yeah, you've got You've got Hearst. You've got The Current, which is in sort of a rebuild right now to the north. Um, but, you know, I do think CT Mirror, CT News Junkie, really great. New Haven Independent, Paul Bass has created something that's sort of a, a model to the nation of how good a, a sort of urban hyperlocal news site can be. You know, but that may not tell you as much as what you need to know in Stratford, you know, and I don't know off the top of my head what Stratford has in terms of really hyper-local political reporting or, you know, uh, online sites, Um, you know. Um, When you mentioned Hearst newspapers, would that include the Connecticut Post? That would, yes. New Haven Register? Yeah, both of those are Hearst, yeah. Okay. So, you know, I mean, it, it depends. A town. One of the problems with Connecticut, obviously, is it's a relatively small space with 169 different towns, which in terms of local uh, politics, whether we're talking about uh, council, board of education, first selectman, mayor, whatever, I mean, you really need somebody dedicated to that job. And and I've watched newspapers really struggle with that problem. You know, I mean, how do you – how can you effectively staff 169 towns or however many towns there are, little tiny 36 square mile towns there are in your in your circulation area? How can you do that and not go broke? Um, you know, Patch.com, too. Once again, I don't know what Patch is doing uh, in Stratford right now. But, and you're kind of dependent on who they've got uh, looking at any particular situation. It's not probably as standardized as you would like uh, a news brand to be. But a lot of the Patch.com stuff, you know, I mean, they, you know, they cover meetings, they they get to stuff, they do important work. So, um, you know, I, the other thing I would say is ask around because sometimes there are, you know, there's some really bad hyperlocal news sites, <laughs> but there's some really good ones too. All right. Let me, what should I do? What should I do? I guess I should take this one and then we'll go to a break. So here's Mark in Wallingford. Hi, Mark. Hey, Colin. I was just thinking about, you know, the recent Hollywood, uh, Halloween, rather, reboot. And, uh, you know, I haven't seen the new one, but after seeing Halloween Kills, I'm inclined to think that David Gordon Green should stick to comedies like Pineapple Express. I saw what you did. I've seen what you've done here. <laughs> All right. I have to. That was very good. That was very smooth. Okay. So I have Mr. Carp envelope here. Sometimes I ask the caller which envelope they would like me to open, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to grab this one. It seems like it has an appropriately sized amount of stuff. Okay, so these seem to be a lot of clips from the New Yorker. For some reason or other, he has separated out the contents page. 
Oh, because there's something about Sondheim. Okay, let's, I'm looking. I can see what, what Edelstein means. These are never good, you know, because it's me fumbling through these things, trying to figure out, well, this looks good. Okay, this is good. This is by Adam Gopnik, who's a friend of the show, and maybe we should even have him on to talk about this. Uh, it says, a system upgrade, can we find a better model of government than liberal democracy? Um, and then there's the sort of the inevitable quote from Churchill, which I use all the time, too. Democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the other forms that have ever been tried. But um, so it would be probably impossible for me to summarize Adam's piece, which probably lo- looks like it's probably running two or 3,000 words here. No, maybe it's not that long. But, I mean, I do think this is the thing that we're struggling with right now. I mean, this is a legit question. It's such an Adam Gottman question, too. But because, in particular, because the standard model of liberal democracy, that small L doesn't have anything to do with liberal versus conservative, is in such jeopardy right now. Uh, and we, in the show we did about centrism last week, we had uh, Yasha Munkan talking about this. You know, I mean— and I don't know that there's an answer to this, but I think it's a more and more pressing question as you see, you know, these populist movements, whether it's in Brazil or Hungary or the United States uh, or unsuccessfully, but probably soon to be more successfully in France or in Italy right now. You know, you have these sort of, you know, populist and sometimes crypto fascist movements that are 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 sweeping away a lot of the guardrails of liberal democracy. And it's, you know, it's a question that we're going to have to debate really, really seriously. You know, do we have the right form of government? Is there a better way to do this form of government? Is there another form of government that would be less amenable to the kind of tampering? I mean, really, we sort of hit that point where I was listening to Obama talk to his former staffers on uh, Pod Save America this morning, and Obama was just saying, you know, what really worries him is not particular positions so much as that whole idea of can we count the votes and come to an agreement about what happened in an election? Is there a common understanding that the candidate who gets the most votes wins the election (laughs) and then is in charge of whatever seat or office uh, the, the election applied to? And that's the, the idea that we would be having to worry about that, I think. And I think we probably aren't even worried, worried enough about it. I think here in the midterms and maybe in 2024, we're going to find out how serious a problem this is. But it's a really serious problem. I mean, uh, and, you know, I mean, obviously, there was a real effort here in the country by the Republican Party to put people in office who don't necessarily believe uh, in conventional approaches to counting the votes and picking the winners. So... Um, I'm going to go home and read Adam's piece. I feel bad that I hadn't read it yet, but that's my, uh, I mean, I can look at Mr. Krupp's underlining and stuff like that, but you know, is that, was that sufficient? Is that worth, how many pineapples would you give that particular reaction? I, I give that three and a half for sure. Three, that was, that was, yeah. I'll take that, it. That, was, that, that you fared better than the other ones, the other most recent ones. Um, you also might want to check out an interesting article in the Atlantic today about, the decline of neoliberalism and how he feels that that has kind of like led to this populist, you know, response. Mm-hmm. I will check that out. All right. So thanks for your call. And also uh, to, I'm going to say Mike, Michael, Mike, uh, Chris from Weatherfield called to suggest vote411.org. Uh, which has uh, information about local politics and stuff like that. It's a site, I believe, maintained by the League of Women Voters. The League of Women Voters, I should have mentioned anyway. I mean, they're great, you know, and they really, really kind of do believe 
They believe in democracy. They believe in our system of government. <laughs> and they even believe that you should know things before you vote. It's all very radical. All right. We got to take a quick break here. We'll come back. The numbers to call 888-720-WNPR. That's also 888-720-9677. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Obviously, we're at the beginning of something. I don't expect you to know where it's gonna go. But I believe we might be on to something. And I just thought maybe you should know. I've been All right, you can throw some hypotheticals in here. It's Ask or Tell Me Anything, 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. All right, I don't know who's been waiting longer. I'll just take a guess that it might be Dan in Glastonbury. Hi, Dan. Hey, Colin, how you doing today? Just fine, just fine. Hey, my minor rant today, and some of my family members may not like this too much, is what's going on with our pet? in our dog culture here. If um, I have one more person who tells me my dog is friendly and won't bite you as that dog is snarling at me, I'm going to, I might snarl back at the dog. And and if I see another dog in a baby carriage all dressed up, uh, (laughs) it just, it just seems to be kind of getting over the top. I go to a, yeah, I go to a restaurant or even go into hotels. It just feels like the dog culture is being imposed upon me and others. Not that I don't like dogs and pets, I do, but just how people, some people just impose their dogs and their pets on other people who maybe are indifferent to pets. So that's, that's just my little minor rant for today. I'm sure there, 
it, it won't be too uh, well received by the uh, dog and pet lovers out there, but eh, that's it. That's right. If you hate Dan, call 888-720-WNPR. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I mean, look, I, there's a couple of little things that, to unpack from what you said. I mean, obviously, there are countries. I mean, I don't know. I don't know about all of France, but... Certainly, even years ago in Paris, finding dogs, like lap dogs in restaurants and stuff, that's pretty common. You know, there are countries where you can bring your dog, dogs a lot more places and they just sort of kind of understood it'll all fit in. In some ways, Americans have been a little bit more strict about separating the two. But I do agree that people are increasingly convinced that dog culture you know, it's just kind of, you know, and pet culture, too, is something that should be pervasive. And I'm a little freaked out, too, by the dogs in the baby carriages or strollers or whatever they're in. I don't I, – anytime I'm on a walk and I was on a walk the other day and there were people, like, carrying their dog. And I was thinking, why – you know, why are you bringing the dog on the walk if you have to carry the dog? It was a little tiny dog. I get that. but. Right. But, like, why just leave the dog at home? Do we have the dog to see the scenery or something? I mean, um, you know, and, yeah, there, I, there are certainly are a lot of people who go, oh, my dog is friendly. And I, I just tell, I, I tell everybody, yeah, I tell everybody my dog is an idiot. I tell my everybody that my dog is an idiot. And that saves a lot of trouble. You know, I'm not trying to valorize him. Yeah. I like that approach. Or, or when people have a conversation with you, and it feels like they need to talk to you through their dog, as if their dog oh, is yeah. the one who's doing the talking right. for them. Yeah, so like, in other words, the, the issue thing, we have to go now, Scooter, because this man over here is not a nice man, and he doesn't like dogs. Uh, <laughs> that, is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah, that's a little weird, too. Um, <laughs> but on the other hand, I have been accused, and I've been accused by people very close to me, of having an inappropriately close relationship with my dog. And that the dog and I need to get into counseling and stuff like that. So I might be the wrong court of law about this particular question. But who? in fact, I'm unzipping my fleece because I realize I have a dog T-shirt on right now. That And it's a T-shirt with a picture of a dog who kind of resembles my dog, Declan. But it is true that when people uh, ask – Declan's kind of unusual looking. And so people ask, what kind of dog is that? And I say, he's a Belgian imbecile. And a lot of people go, oh, really? <laughs> And then I have to say, no, there, that's, there is no such thing. Um, all right. So let's move onward to Peter from Preston City. Hi, Peter. How do you do? I do what fine. Great, good. What a great show and lively and uh, very, uh, very interesting all the time. Hey, um, I love the dog comments. I'm not sure what inappropriate behavior with a dog really means. But anyway, I'm calling because um, I live in Preston City. I've lived here 55 years. And um, 165 runs from Route 395 down to Route 164 to Route 2. It's a direct route of the casino. It was designated designated a number of years ago as a scenic route. Well, in the past six or eight months, the state has come in with, I'm sure you've seen these machines that can, you know, level a forest in about five minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have cut down many 150, I'm sure, year old trees along 164. And at the intersection of 395 and 164, the same thing. In fact, when they first did it, I came back from Massachusetts and came off the exit and didn't recognize it. And um, 
anyway, coming down 164 just this past week and a half to two weeks, they've leveled any number of trees, and I can't see any real reason for it because many of the trees aren't near wires. So I have no idea what's going on. I've called the town, and they don't seem to have an answer. A friend of mine said it's because they're putting in some new housing, but that doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. So, you know, I'm just really discouraged because it's it's starting to look a little like Bradley Airport. <laughs> well, that's not, not a good thing. Yeah, I mean, not knowing that particular stretch of road, I can't be knowledgeable about it. I do feel as though we're sort of not in Kansas anymore. We're kind of in a new era uh, it probably started with the so-called Arborgeddon. I can't remember what year that was, but that was that famous October, end of October storm uh, where snow uh, got on the trees. The trees still had leaves and just it wiped out uh, power all over Connecticut. People right. were, were that power for nine, nine or ten days. Um, very common. Right. And, and at that time, Governor Malloy said, all right, <laughs> we're going after you, trees. We're, we're going to come get you. Uh, he kind of went jihad on trees. But the reality is, and I know Eversource now has this kind of scorecarding thing that they do where they they uh, they, uh, they have come up with some kind of score for trees in certain areas and uh, the potential for outages. And not just outages, though. It's the limbs that fall across the road or the tree that falls across the road right. and ties up traffic. Um, and, and the problem is, as you know, we're having more frequent and more intense storms these days. Yep. And so, uh, you know, our old tree removal policy probably doesn't work as well in the current environment. Now, yeah. what you're describing sounds like, you know, possibly an overreaction. <laughs> well, the, the problem is these are, are really stately old yeah. trees that don't appear to be damaged or suffering from any sort of a blight. Yeah. And, you know, it's just very discouraging to see. Well, that's the, whole yeah, I, I'd forgotten that about that part, too. Yeah, the emerald ash borer, which is just yeah, devastating for us. But you're saying that they, they don't seem to have those things. No, they seem to be very healthy trees that they've just pulled down. And, you know, it, it seemed to be almost random. Mm -hmm. But if you had a row of four beautiful maples... <laughs> They were just wiped out. Taken. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. And, uh, you know, I mean, you're right to ask for an, uh, an explanation that's specific to this situation. Uh, and you should continue to press for an explanation. Uh, I do think we're going to see more tree cutting and more removal of the kind that we typically sentimentally don't like because we're just – we are in literally a different environment. <laughs> uh, the storms are worse. They come more often. They blow harder. They knock stuff down. And that's dangerous, too. I mean, people get killed by falling limbs and stuff like that. So, you know, we can't probably be quite as sentimental about trees as we have been in the past. And then, yeah, also, you know, once again, forestry management is a complicated thing. You do have to cut, take out trees sometimes for the overall health, health of the forest. And then you've got the borer and some of the other pests that are coming through here. And the borer is like you go out – I don't know. I, I haven't walked out in McLean Woods for a while uh, up in Simsbury, but just it looked like, I don't know, it looked like there had been like a fire or something, except that there wasn't. It was just, uh, you know, this pest boring into the trees. All right. So we have some more calls coming in here. It's Brian. Brian on Long Island. Brian, what's on your mind, sir? Hey, thanks for uh, thanks for taking me in. appreciate it. Sure. Um, yeah, I wanted to touch on an interesting aspect of the stock market that I had recently learned about, and that is the uh, direct registration of shares. And the, the basic premise is that uh, when you buy shares of any investment through a brokerage, 
Um, they're held in what's called street name. Um, basically, you are just the beneficial owner of those shares. You can vote for them and, and of course, buy and sell them as you like. But they're really held by the brokerage you are operating with. Whereas if you direct register your shares with the company's transfer agent, they are in fact held in your name and uh, can't be used against you, which can often happen um, in an investment when uh, shares held in street name, as they as they call it, are are loaned out, um, either known to you or not known to you, uh, for things like short selling, um, which is you know an act against your investment. Why would you use your shares? It, it seems uh, it, it seems uh, you know <laughs> at odds uh, when you can use your investment against you in that way. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I think I think it may have always been the case that um, stocks um, that are held in your name by a brokerage are actually technically owned by the brokerage. I think that street name thing is all, has been, you know, it's not, I don't think it's a new development. I could be wrong. This, I'm way out of my depth right now. I, I should admit that part. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think people are probably a little bit more comfortable if they, you know, and I don't know that it's true for all brokerage accounts too. Um, so I don't know. I don't know enough about this to comment on it other than to say that Certainly, 2008 taught us to ask more questions about our holdings and, and ask more. It should have taught us to ask way more questions about brokerages and how they handle our holdings and whether, they, whether they are always candid with us about what they're doing. I mean, the short selling, I am still bothered by the fact that Goldman Sachs and, and other firms in, in 08 would market aggressively some of the credit default uh, swaps and and other derivatives to buyers while on an undisclosed basis short selling the same stuff um, in other words they just they had determined this stuff was so weak that the best way that they could make money on it was to, to, to sell it short uh, as part of their strategy but they were they were just touting its strengths to buyers to me why people did not go to jail for that uh, I, I will never, ever understand. But in terms of the whole street name thing, I don't really know enough about it to, to be smart about it. But thanks for calling and may, perhaps triggering some interest on my part. Uh, all right. We're going to take a quick break here. We've got uh, David wants to talk more about trees. Mary Jane wants to talk about fracking and whatever you want to talk about. 888-720-WNPR. 888-720-9677. And we're coming out of dreams. Coming back to dreams Yeah, we're coming out of dreams As we're coming back to dreams Dreams are thoughts in And we are back. It's time to say some thank yous. 
First one goes to Gene Amatruda, who is the he is the oversoul uh, of uh, this building and and all the technology at this radio station. And because Cat Pastor is not with us today, Gene Amatruda is the technical producer of our show. Uh, very exciting. And then Jonathan McPants has made the journey up here from Hamden uh, to uh, be our call screener and therefore producer of the show today. Uh, so thanks to both of them. And yeah, we're doing Ask or Tell Me Anything. Uh, and looking uh, <laughs> at the call. Here. The numbers are 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. Um, all right. I guess I could – well, let's see. Well, let me just let me just see what this is. Okay. This is a good one. This is a really good one. I don't know how I'm going to answer this, but I think it's a really good topic. Here's Debbie in Norwich. Hi, Debbie. You're on the air. Hi there. How are you? Fine. I, I have a question. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people assume that as we age, we become more conservative. But I've found among my friends who are septuagenarians like me that uh, we're headed way further left like we were back in the 60s. What is the assumption there for? Well, so, you know, some of it goes back to, is it, I'm, I always think that Edmund Burke said something, if I don't know who said it, but somebody back in the sort of the Edmund Burke era said something like, uh, and sorry for using gendered language, but I think he did. Uh, a man, a man who is not a liberal in his youth has no heart, and a man who is not a conservative in his older years has no brain. It's something along those lines. Um, and and I, I think okay. the the some the assumption has always been that as you get older, you have more assets, you have more things that you're eager to conserve, uh, you are less interested in change. If you've played the game of life life successfully, you've acquired things, and so you're you're kind of sitting on your pile, right? You're sitting on your stash uh, and or sitting on your pot, as they would say, not about toilets, but about poker. Uh, and right. so th- I think that's kind of the assumption, that you're not interested in a massive redis- redistribution of resources and power because you're kind of done with that. Um, now, that's only really true for a, a, you know, a select class of persons, but I think that's where the idea comes from. And, and I would say, you know, it is more... Well, let's go to your case, okay? So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, but let me, before I do okay. that, um, I'm going to assume also that some of this is because, and and I think this is one of the reasons that the phenomenon you're describing is fairly widespread. It does seem as though conservative forces, forces on the right, are especially interested in violating certain covenants that they've had with older Americans. You know, I mean, Rick Scott put out this kind of, you know, sort of generalized commercial for the Republican National Senate campaign where, you know, he brought up this kind of Paul Ryan idea of radically restructuring and possibly kind of eviscerating uh, Social Security and Medicare. So I don't know how conservatives hold on to older voters. I'm amazed that the conservatives have older voters if they're not actively distancing themselves from Rick Scott and people like that. What a losing issue that would be. Uh, But so, I mean, I do feel as though some of us, as we get older, we look around and go, where's the safety net? You know, what's going to keep me from going under? What's going to keep me from losing whatever I do have as a result of illness and stuff like that? And so you're happy that Medicare is there. You're happy that Social Security is there. And you've also paid in. So you feel as though you're kind of entitled to it, too. Um, but I don't know. I mean, why do you think why do you think you and your friends are becoming drifting more and more to the left? Um. A lot of it is because we have grandchildren who are at the getting married stage, mm-hmm. and 
were frightened that the the economy and the climate and all of that kind of stuff is just going to collapse right in their laps and they're going to be clueless about what to do about it. Yeah, no, that's a great point. My my argument was far more selfish and self-centered. Uh, yours is much more focused on other generations. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair question. And, you know, young people... Um, young people also tend to track a little bit more strongly towards those issues. They see fairness, uh, fairness towards the LGBT community, fairness mm-hmm. towards economically disadvantaged people, and 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 um, environmental justice, both in the terms of climate uh, issues and just you know pollution in, in disadvantaged neighborhoods. They see all those things as pretty powerful and pressing moral issues and issues of survival too. So yeah, I mean. You know, let me ask you another question, though. This is a some, somewhat frivolous question. Do you or any of your friends refer to Rachel Maddow by her first name like you know her? Like, do you do think? Did you hear what Rachel said last night? Or yeah, I got to wrap this no, up. I got to go watch Rachel. Hear, no, it would be. Did you hear what Maddow said last night? It would be Maddow. Okay. Um, I always ask my students uh, in the political science seminar that I teach if their you know parents or grandparents talk about Rachel like she's a personal friend. But I do think there's some of that too. You know, there's this kind of a way maybe of having these conversations uh, that didn't exist before because some of the new forms of journalism that are out there. Sure, I'm sure, and you guys help. Um, I, I also think that perhaps it's the area that I grew up in, which is north the, the northeast corner. Yeah. A little different than Norwich, and they tend to be way more conservative, uh, <laughs> way more conservative of about everything. Yeah. Well, I mean, killingly, because I mean, killingly is now a model to the happened. nation. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, no. So we we'll were see. there when Selma happened, and it's still happening. Why? Yeah. Um, but no, killingly is now a model to the nation in terms of just sort of intolerance and you know, really short-sighted thinking and stuff like that. So, uh, so Yeah, yeah, I, I know about about the football team or whatever it is. Well, there's also this whole that, question yeah. of, of mental health in the schools. They're actually, you know, there's a strong movement in Killingly oppo- opposing mental health resources being <laughs> available in right, public and schools. And the thing is, it, it would have been free from the generations, people. Yeah. So, um, so you know, moving south was probably a pretty good idea. Don't move further south than Norwich. We'd like to hang on to you. You seem like a really nice person, Debbie. Uh, all right, so let's uh, take a call from... Well, so it's interesting when a conversational thread gets started, you know. So um, we've got a tree call and a dog call. Let's do the dog call first because I, I do have my dog T-shirt on. All right, here's uh, Sarah in Deep River. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. Um, I heard the man who was upset. And I understand why, um, but I just lost my, my dog about two weeks ago. And it's amazing how many people understand mm-hmm. what, it, what it's like. I'll get another dog, but it's not a replacement. It's filling a hole in your heart. No, that's totally true. Um, I'm going to just pop you on hold because you seem to be in, in a blast furnace or something. Uh, there's something happening right now. Of a mechanical nature in your vicinity, but um, but yeah, there is something about the relationship. This does not apply to McNichol and his dog. I say, but but there's something about the relationship we have with dogs. It's so much more. It, it it's so much less complicated. 
than our relationship with other humans, right? Uh, our relationship with other humans is really kind of predicated on such a multiplicity of factors, how we're getting along with another human being. There's so many things that enter into it. With a dog, it's kind of like, all right, did you take me for a walk? Did you play with me? Did you pet me? Okay, I love you. You're great. Um, you know, it's just, it, it really doesn't get much beyond that. And there is sort of a constancy about it, too. I mean, dogs have moods and stuff. But basically, you know, anytime Declan sees me, it's just like he's just so happy to see me. Um, and, you know, I mean, I'm not saying there, are, there aren't people in my life who aren't 90% of the time <laughs> happy to see me. Um, but there is – and there's a – here's the part I'm leaving out, and I think Sarah would definitely identify with this if, in fact, she hasn't been crushed by a smelter right now or whatever that was in there. But, um, you know, there's a way in which our, our emotions are purer in that regard too. Once again, I think this might – McNichol might not be sort of in the same category. He has a different kind of dog. But, um, but you know, like our emotions – you know, we have complicated feelings about one another. We, even if we like one another a lot, we have really, really complicated feelings. Whereas we can put onto our dogs a kind of emotion that might be our best emotions. You know, our best emotional reaction to a living creature might be more likely to be a dog, towards a dog than towards a person. Now, Dave, if that's what his name was, would say, that's a problem, right? I mean, if, in fact, you need a dog to call forth the best emotions that you have, um, that's not a good thing. Uh, all right, so I got two more calls left here. I'm going to try to get to both of them, but I can't promise it. So Mary Jane from North Stonington, if I don't get to you, my profoundest apologies. Uh, I know you have mountain lions running all over the place there. It takes a lot of time to just get on the phone and wait for the call to be taken. So I feel bad if I don't get to you. But let's go to David in Washington, Connecticut. Hi, David. How are you? Just fine. Okay. In reference to the tree cutting hmm. call, the uh, state directed uh, Eversource to address the broken wire problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Eversource has hired independent contractors to fix the problem. Yeah. However, uh, this doesn't seem to really have any supervision. And these men are paid to cut, and that's what they're doing. So it, it just is out of control. But again, it's built on the American ethic of make more money. So the tree cutting companies are making more money by how many trees they can cut. In the theory, they're supposed to be cutting the branches off the wires. That was as we understood. Right. I mean, I think yeah, exactly. Ten years ago, Eversource raised all our rates because they were talking about putting possibly wires underground. But that never happened, and our rates didn't go down. Right. But I, I mean, I, I, would. I do remember after Arborgeddon, whatever year that was, there was like <laughs> yeah. this. There was this big conversation about trees, about underground utilities, because it was so bad. Yeah. I mean, that was like a really bad experience uh -huh. for a lot of people. It wasn't a minor inconvenience. By the time you're, no. you know, 10, 11, 12 days without power, you've lost your sense of humor and your sense of adventure and uh, your, yeah. you know, your whole attitude towards your own bodily functions. Uh, and, and so there was a lot of talk about you know, extreme measures. But I think your theory is an interesting one, too. If they hire out you know, if they contract this out, um, you know, and then don't supervise it uh, completely well. well. How can they? Yeah. You know, it would be up to the municipalities to supervise. Right. But I've driven between Sharon and Cornwall on 44, and I watched them take out, as the caller had said, large trees that really weren't even in affecting 
anything right. other than they were large trees. Well, this is why we're, we're working on a show right now. And, we're working on a show right now about the importance of state and local elections and, and why uh-huh. it's important who your state and local officials are. This is a good example. I mean, this is something you should be talking to your selectmen about and stuff like that. All right, we have to go. I'm really sorry, but we're out of time. And I'm sorry to Mary Jane. And But next, next time, next time, Mary Jane. All right, thanks, Gene. Here we go. has been disconnected.